And I think that's been the most eye-opening part of running the ICU follow-up program. Like we, like in the ICU, I don't want to take away from the fact that we have some great saves. You know, some people come in, they're incredibly broken from a you know car crash or they're in multi-organ failure because of a really bad infection. And we have like a huge teams of people that work really hard to save their lives. And as these patients are like, leaving the intensive care unit, you know, they, they'll sort of wave at us and we high five and belly bump. It's like, yeah, we did a great job saving this person's life. And then I see them like six months later in our follow-up clinic and they're like, listen, like every time I try to fall asleep, all I hear is like the screech of the pumps in the ICU. Uh, I, you know, I wake up and I still fe feel people like shoving things down my throat. I never had anxiety before, and now I'm afraid to, to uh, fall asleep at night because I'm worried that I'm going to wake up, you know, back on the ventilator again. My guest on this episode is Dr. Gordon Boyd, a neurologist and critical care physician. Critical care, also known as intensive care, is the area of medicine that specializes in the care of the sickest patients. Within the intensive care unit of the hospital, the ICU, a multidisciplinary team of nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, and critical care physicians care for these patients and their families. It is in the ICU that the end game of medicine is played out. One methodical decision after another attempts to bring the patient back to a state where they can function on their own. But what their recovery looks like after their ICU stay is variable. Over 250,000 Canadians are admitted to the ICU per year, and 80% of which will recover from their stay, but it's becoming clear that surviving the ICU is just the beginning. Post-intensive care syndrome, referred to by its acronym as PICS, P-I-C-S, describes the cognitive and physical symptoms that patients suffer from after an ICU stay. These symptoms can have major consequences for patients. They can impair their ability to return to work and engage with activities they used to bring them joy. The recovery process itself can also be taxing for family members. What leads to PICS is an area of active research. During their ICU stay, patients may experience a state of delirium, a state where they have cognitive disturbances, where they lack attention or see things that aren't in the room. Patients who experience delirium in the ICU are more likely to suffer from post-intensive care syndrome. Dr. Boyd is the principal investigator on the CONFOCAL study, which looks to address the association between brain oxygenation, delirium, and post-ICU outcomes. They've generously donated their time today to discuss with us their research and their experience of being a critical care physician. This includes what it's like to communicate with families during times of crisis and care for them within a multidisciplinary team. Now, one thing I left out in the intro, but I think is important to talk about, is that Dr. Boyd is also the drummer of the band Old Docs and New Tricks. Thought it would be a fun way to start this conversation by discussing the band. And can you tell me a bit more about it and what being involved in it uh, kind of brings uh, to your life? Sure. Well, thanks so much for the introduction. I've been playing with this band for almost a decade now. We're an eight-person all-physician band, uh, hence the name Old Docs, New Tricks. And uh, we basically were like a 70s, 80s cover band. Uh, I play the drums and it's a, it's a ton of fun. Actually, immediately before uh, signing on to this uh, podcast, I sent out a doodle poll to try to organize our next practice. As you can imagine, it's absolutely <laughs> terrible trying to coordinate the schedule between eight uh, busy clinicians who work in the, the hospital and have their own on-call schedules. Uh, so we practice about once a week when we're getting ready for a show and 
it's pretty rare that all eight of us are there for that, you know, uh, for every single rehearsal. But yeah, we've got a show coming up next Friday night. Uh, we're playing the Department of Medicine holiday party. So yeah, we're pretty excited about that. Try out a couple new songs and see how they go. What makes you more nervous playing in front of that audience without the optimal time of practice or taking care of a, of a difficult patient in the ICU? Definitely taking care of a really sick patient in the ICU. The, the stakes are a little bit higher. Uh, I played in a band yeah, during undergrad and, you know, we, we were okay, but we, we weren't that good. And I, so I know <laughs> if you make lots of mistakes, like to the point where you have to stop and even start the song over again, uh, nobody really cares. Um, <laughs> yeah. The stakes are a little bit higher looking after uh, a ventilated patient in the ICU. Fair enough. Yeah. You're trained in neurology. You've done a neurology residency. You have a PhD where, and if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you looked at um, how we can uh, recover peripheral nerves through, um, neurotropic factors. Yeah, neurotrophic factors. Yeah. yeah. Neurology and critical care medicine look slightly different practices. Neurology in terms of the patients you see, obviously the the outcomes are important as well, but it's not as critical. You know, there aren't all these like alarms going off all the time. What made you kind of decide critical care medicine after your neurology residency? Yeah, I wish I could say it all started off with this like super grand master plan uh, from the get go. But we've already talked about the drumming. Like I basically I was like they threatened academic probation during my undergrad because oh, wow. I was failing more classes than I was passing because we were playing in the bar. We were recording albums and I just didn't have the focus to, you know, study for exams. So I didn't have the marks to get into medical school uh, right out of undergrad and just happened to uh, start a master's degree and latched onto this like really great project and a really amazing supervisor who was really supportive of me uh, pursuing a career in medicine. So I finished my PhD and then did medical school afterwards. So my PhD is in neuroscience. I did a postdoctoral fellowship in neuroanatomy. Like I was a neuro keener all the way through. And I thought maybe I was interested in doing neuro surgery and then realized pretty early on that I, you know, being in the operating room wasn't for me. And then I sort of fell into a great mentor in neurology to say, listen, you can actually be involved in the neurosciences and not have to spend all your time in the, uh, in the operating room. So as a second year neurology resident, we all have to rotate through different departments in the hospitals. And, and in second year, I had to do my IC rotation. And that was like my aha moment in my life, uh, like within like my first couple of days of being there, it's like, oh my goodness. This is really what I need to do with the rest of my life. I really love the acuity of it. I love the team-based uh, approach to how they manage patients. And it was an absolute goldmine of like really interesting neurology, like, you know, whether or not patients were admitted with a neurological diagnosis or if they developed a neurological complication, uh, at least every patient in the intensive care unit has some neurological um, problem that needs to be dealt with. And you're right, like right off the get go, like there's not a lot of overlap between neurology and critical care medicine. Even when I was a second year resident, uh, neurology residents weren't even allowed to apply to critical care medicine. Oh, wow. They fortunately changed those rules. And, and there was one person ahead of me, uh, Dr. Philippe Couillard. He's a neurointensivist in Calgary, but he was the first person in Canada to combine uh, neurology and critical care medicine. And I just followed him one year behind. Currently, you're a clinical scientist. So you're spending some time as a critical care physician taking care of patients and also uh, conducting uh, research. So my schedule is split between uh, research, which is about 75% of my time doing research. And 25% of my time is doing clinical work uh, divided either between caring for people in the intensive care unit or uh, covering our acute stroke service in the hospital. What I've heard from different healthcare professionals when you talk about the ICU is this myth of the ICU doctor, the kind of 
a grumpy, maybe an ICU cowboy doctor going in. And um, it seems that like this, the focus is really on organ failure, you know, the kidneys, the lungs, the heart. And it seems that in the past, the brain was quite overlooked in this field. Yeah, I would, I would agree with part of that. I think in the past, the brain has been an underlooked organ system that fails in the intensive care unit. You mentioned in your introduction that I studied delirium. That's essentially acute brain failure. And for years, like people would just say, oh yeah, you know, you know, so-and-so over in bed 13, they're a little bit confused today, but they would never use that sort of terminology to talk to talk about somebody who's developing some acute re uh, renal failure or acute lung failure, right? But for decades, we've you have this really bizarre approach to acute brain failure, uh, and it's only been in the last you know ten or fifteen years ago where we we've recognized what an emergency that is. And I'd also like to to counteract the myth of us being grumpy physicians. I, actually, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. I think we're like one of the like you know, down to earth, easygoing groups of physicians in the hospital, we deal with crisis. And that's really a big part of what we do. Uh, and we also deal a lot with communication, communication mm -hmm. between you know, healthcare providers, we coordinate often like many different groups of consultants uh, involved in the care of our patients. And I tell families all the time, probably the biggest and most important part of my job is communicating with families right. uh, and sitting down with them and having really hard conversations about, you know, how their loved one is going to recover if they're not going to recover or die with us in the ICU and, and how that looks like. And you can't be good at having those really tough conversations and being some angry, gruff doctor in the hospital that nobody wants to hang out with. Right, right. And it's not great for the the family members that are going through it. No, as well. it's, it's it, yeah, it would be a terrible experience for the family. So yeah, yeah most of us are pretty uh, relaxed, easygoing uh, right. group of people. Myth busted. We'll, we'll get this out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, from an outsider perspective, if you have someone in the ICU, a loved one in the ICU, and you obviously it's very traumatic seeing them hooked up to all these machines and, and not being able to breathe on their own. And then it's difficult compared to other areas of medicine or other interactions of medicine to have a prognosis in mind from a caregiver perspective of, okay, what is recovery going to look like here? And how do you meet that challenge as the ICU doctor to go and sit with a family member and try to explain to them, you know, what it's going to look like, what even if they're if they get better, what recovery is going to look like and setting those expectations? Because I feel like with other areas of medicine, maybe we have more exposure to it. So those expectations are kind of already set or developed to some degree but less so with the ICU. And it really, it's quite variable depending on where my patients are in their ICU journey. Like in the first couple of days when people come in and they're really sick and they're on lots of different medications supporting their heart rate and their blood pressure. And we're not really sure whether or not they're gonna survive their ICU stay. I have a very different conversation with families because what they'll wanna know is what their loved one's life is going to be like in the next three to six months. You know, are they going to recover? Are they going to be, you know, able to come home? Are they going to be able to go back to work? And I will tell them pretty frankly that while it's important for them to think about, you know, the long-term cons uh, consequences of this, I need to reorient them to the fact that their loved one is critically ill, they're on life support, and they may not actually survive this illness. As 
the patient, you know, it starts to get better in the ICU and it seems like they are going to survive their ICU stay, we can certainly start talking about what long-term recovery uh, will look like. I will talk to them about the fact that they are probably looking at, you know, weeks or months of being in the hospital, weeks or months of rehabilitation. And even if they do uh, uh, get discharged home, uh, they're at risk of all of the things that you mentioned in your introduction, the things that we call the post-ICU syndrome. So people are at risk of having some long-term cognitive impairment. People are at risk of having, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or new or worsening anxiety or depression. And only about a third uh, to 50% of previously employed ICU survivors ever go back to the jobs that they have. So I think it's pretty important that people have pretty realistic expectations as to what their loved one's outcome and recovery is going to look like. There is a toll on the healthcare provider, I think, to to have to have that conversation. One thing that we've talked about with other healthcare professionals is managing burnout and compassion fatigue, as it's called. How has that affected you over your uh, decade of practice? And how do you kind of cope with that? So there's lots of different ways I can answer that. The, f the first part is about like, you know, how we actually convey this information to families. And if I've matured in any way over my 10 years of doing this, I'm actually, I've become much more confident in my ability to convey uncertainty to families. You know, I learned as a yeah, medical student, I learned as a resident that the worst thing you can say to a family is, I don't know. And now I'm actually really good at looking people straight in the eye and say, listen, I don't really know what the future brings for your loved one. Uh, really, what we're going to do is just take this, you know, day by day and see where we go. In terms of managing, you know, you know, burnout, uh, like that, that is uh, something that's, you know, on the front of mind of all, you know, people who work in the hospital, particularly those who work in the intensive care unit. If the pandemic exposed anything for us, it's like how fragile our healthcare human resources are, and how susceptible that we were to, you know, things like burnout, uh, and, and loss. We were relatively spared in the first and second COVID waves here at Kingston Health Sciences Center. Uh, but in the third wave in, um, I, I don't even remember the actual month, and it was a spring, a spring of 2021, I believe, where the um, Greater Toronto Area decanted all their critically ill patients. So our ICU generally has 34 uh, ventilated, the capacity for 34 ventilated patients. Uh, and within about two to three weeks, we went from 34 patients to, and we peaked to 78 uh, ventilated patients in our intensive care unit. And that was actually a real challenge for us. From a physician model, we really didn't have to look after many more patients. Like a typical team for me is, is 11 or 12 ICU patients. And I would still look after 11 or 12 patients, but instead of having three teams of physicians in the unit, we would have seven teams of physicians in the unit. So I was just working more frequently than I typically would, but I wasn't looking after more patients. What this was really, really hard on was our nursing staff. They were working many, many more shifts than what they typically would. They didn't have the recovery days in between. Uh, and the shifts that they were working were often much longer than what would be expected. Now, um, as we are coming on the other end of the pandemic, we are uh, often operating our ICU with about only 50 to 70% of the nurses we need to uh, operate uh, the unit that we would have had you know, pre-pandemic. And that's because some of them have, have left the, the profession or the specialty or? Yeah, so more leave, leaving the specialty, uh, working in different areas of the hospital, we're working in outpatient uh, areas. Mm -hmm. One thing that we underlooked during the communication uh, aspect in the pandemic is the idea of just ventilators, just get as many ventilators as you can. But one thing that's critical to keep in mind is the uh, nurse to patient ratio in the ICU 
and what really happens when you put someone on a ventilator. And how would you describe that, putting someone on a ventilator, what it does to them physiologically, but also from a monitoring standpoint of what the involvement of, of looking after that patient can you kind of walk us through that a bit? Sure. Well, I can walk you through what it looks like even to put a patient on a, on a mm -hmm. breathing machine. We would typically do this if not in the context of a um, bad pneumonia related to COVID. We would, uh, first of all, we would all be in our personal protective uh, equipment, uh, getting ready to intubate the patient. There would be anywhere between two and 10 people in the room, depending on uh, any anticipated complications. And we would use uh, medication to get the patient off to sleep. We would use medications to relax their muscles. Uh, and then we would uh, use a us usually a video camera that we would put in their mouth to visualize their vocal cords, to put the breathing tube in between their vocal cords to go into their trachea. Uh, and then after that, we would make sure they were on some sedative medications uh, and some medications for, for pain. And often these patients were yeah, systemically quite unwell. So we'd have to use medications to support their heart rate and their blood pressure as well. So at any one given time, these individual patients would be on between four and sometimes 15 or 20 different medications that were all run through infusion pumps. And for individuals that were uh, in the ICU, they, you're right, they often had one-on-one -on -one or one-to-two uh, nursing, but they also had you know, patient care assistants, people who restock the rooms. We have respiratory therapists who manage the ventilators and make sure that the endotracheal tubes are well, well secured. And there's so many other members of our healthcare team, like physiotherapists, occupational therapists. Our social worker uh, is really the, one of the key people in the ICU that you know, help keeps our, our unit together. She's there for emotional support, not just for families and patients, but often for the staff as well. Uh, we have spiritual care healthcare provider who also, again, is probably just as much support for the, the people who work in the ICU. It's really great. He's just started a new initiative, actually. Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, first Wednesday of every month is called Tea with Tim. Hmm. Uh, so if we all get a chance to carve out a few minutes in our day, we go and sit and chat and debrief. And I, actually, I think it's like one of the burnout mitigation measures uh, that right. we've sort of instituted in our ICU. I think communication, like you said, is such an important aspect, not only with patients and, and, and the team, and not only about the medical kind of trajectory and medical scope of what's going on. Having that conversation, that tea with Tim, is that kind of venting a little bit, you're offloading and or just saying aloud what are some anxieties or stressors or... Sure. Yeah. It's just a chance to decompress about anything you need to decompress about. Yeah. Um, again, it's a really like high stress, high stakes environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all sort of like, you know, completely emptied our bucket uh, during the, the busiest phases of the pandemic. Going into work now versus going into work before the pandemic, you know, if I was putting myself in your shoes and uh, obviously without the training it would be even scarier, but if I'm <laughs> thinking <laughs> I'm going in here and I'm going to take care of this patient. And again, like, like I said in the intro, this is the end game of medicine. This is, this is it. These decisions are what's going to, um, you know, these decisions as well, obviously the physiology of the patient and where they're at, but I would be quite nervous before a shift. And I think after maybe some some years of experience, that anxiety would maybe go down. Has that changed after the pandemic or does that ever change after residency in your fellowship? I don't really know. I still feel pretty anxious. Again, it's pretty high stakes. If somebody comes in respir with respiratory failure and we can't get the breathing tube in, they die. Um, so if it is a fairly high stakes environment, um, but it's not... A, I can't emphasize like the team-based approach to this uh, enough, right? Like, if I'm ever in an environment where you know somebody's really sick, I'm I'm worried about them, and I'm they might need to be intubated, but I'm not sure I'm able to do it, or if I have concerns that it's going to be challenging. Like I'm not the only doctor in the hospital. Like I have a 
whole like army of support people around and and ally you know additional you know physicians so i've got like a couple of respiratory therapists who will be in the room i have colleagues in anesthesiology uh, who basically their day-to-day job involves putting breathing tubes in people's throats um i have some colleagues that are both anesthesiologists and critical care physicians so there's like lots and lots of supports around for us to i think it sort of helps mitigate that that anxiety just like the ventilator isn't the the magic kind of one solution to saving a patient's life it's the icu is this this multidisciplinary team that um not just for the machinery to run properly and the patient care but also the uh the mental health and uh kind of emotional support of of the entire staff there at the same time yeah yeah. Well, you, it, that's why, you know, all of us who worked in the intensive care, you know, we're sort of joking about like what the plan was for this. Like, oh, we just need more beds and more ventilators. Right. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not even remotely the problem. Um, yeah, like it's probably, you know, it takes 10 to 15 staff people to look after one individual on a ventilator. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of resources and, and the expertise that comes with it. That's what you want. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Moving on to. The ICU with its, the focus is, you know, respiratory organs. And then also now uh, in the last uh, kind of 10, 15 years, this evolution of, okay, well, what's going on in the brain and, and the brain failure that's going on. This um, concept of delirium is from a neurological standpoint, there's, it's quite difficult to assess neurological disease sometimes. Uh, would that be a correct statement to say compared to other uh- diseases? So in the ICU, lots of our patients are on some sedative drugs to keep them comfortable while they have a breathing tube in their throat. There's been a move over the last five or 10 years to really try to keep people as awake and interactive as possible uh, in the ICU. So you may think it's you know odd or atypical, but lots of our patients are completely awake, but they still have a breathing tube in their throat to, to help support their lung function. And we know that the more awake people are, probably the better they do in terms of ICU outcomes. We know that they spend less time on the ventilator, they spend less time in the intensive care unit, and they probably have a lower mortality uh, if our focus is on you know, limited sedation, or at least every day, uh, wake up the patient to make sure that they're not overly sedated. But I agree. So sedation certainly confounds uh, our ability to test their brain function. So most of the screening tools that we have for delirium, one of the first parts of that is assessing their depth of sedation. But there's really well-validated screening tools uh, that uh, are recommended for the, the screening and detection for delirium. And part of the reason that in the past, this the practice was to sedate is to comfort the patient? Yeah. So I, I think it was more the there's been a total paradigm shift in the way that we care for patients in the intensive care unit. Uh, there used to be this thought process where you would just want to keep people sedated and comfortable as possible until their heart had recovered and their lungs had recovered and their kidneys had recovered. And after all their other organ systems had recovered, then it was time to, to wake them up and get them off the ventilator. Whereas we're realizing now, you know, you don't need to do those you know, uh, processes independently and they can all be done uh, together. You can still support somebody's lung function, their heart function, but keep them on as minimal sedation as possible. I wonder sometimes um, when making change within medicine, it's it has to be quite a courageous process because it feels like you're taking a leap from one step into another with this kind of void in the middle of uncertainty of what might happen. Is that is that part of the barrier? Was that one of the barriers to change? Would you say? Yeah, uh, you describe it as a leap. Nothing really happens in medicine in terms of leaps. It's, <laughs> it's baby steps and small incre- incre- incremental changes uh, everywhere. 
Um, and I think that's really what's happened. You know, this uh, the trial showing that people did better if they were a little bit more awake and had a daily chance to, to breathe on their own were published sort of in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and over about a 10 or 15, pe- 10 or 15 year period and a couple iterations of new guidelines and uh, knowledge translation, more and more ICUs across the, the globe were adopting this, this sort of approach to managing patients on a ventilator. And I guess that's kind of what research really is, is, is these many baby steps with a lot of contributors. And that's kind of what you're, um, you're doing with your role as the lead investigator on, on Confocal. Can you walk me a bit through that and the challenges of getting that um, that study approved because it's quite a quite a big study. Yeah, and thanks. It's something that we're we're pretty excited about, and it's something that's we've been working on for you know, since 2014. We did an initial pilot study of just 10 patients in our ICU uh, to look at the associ- association between how much oxygen was being delivered to a patient's brain and how that it was associated with delirium. And in this 10-patient study, we really just demonstrated that it was, you know, totally feasible to collect this data uh, and monitor patients in the intensive care unit. And then we followed that up with uh, a bigger study of 104 patients in our ICU, uh, which showed the patients that experienced delirium actually had lower uh, cerebral oxygenation or who had delirium compared to patients that weren't delirious. So we used that preliminary and pilot data to get some funding from the Canadian government to do a large prospective observational study at lots of different centers across Canada uh, and one center in the, in the United States. We're pretty excited about this. This will be the biggest study to date that's looked at the association between cerebral oxygenation, delirium, and long-term outcomes. We unfortunately study, started this study in 2019, immediately prior to the pandemic. Um, <laughs> Uh, so for the first year, we had like really great recruitment. Uh, and then you can actually look at our recruitment graph and it basically plateaus in March of 2020, where almost every center that we had uh, stopped enrollment into non-COVID uh, studies. Understandably, and you know, really the, the focus needed to be on how are we going to deal with this uh, worldwide pandemic. So it's only been in the last, you know, 12 months or so that we have started to uh, rebuild uh, and get all the centers back up and running again. And we actually just crossed our 50% mark. So we had a party a few months wow, ago. Congrats. Because uh, we, yeah, thanks. We've now passed uh, 250 patients that we need for our study. Have ICUs been less receptive, more receptive post COVID to participating in studies? Because it, asking an ICU to come on board and participate in the study and measure these oxygen, uh, the cerebral oxygenation, it's it's fairly simple. It's this kind of infrared device that you're using, but to get them to be on board with the study, to collect the data, to go through it in a methodical way, that's that's a bigger ask, no? It is, it is a fairly uh, big ask um, because we're asking them to get consent from uh, family members who are really having one of the worst days of their life. Uh, we're asking them to do some de- dairy, daily delirium screening. Uh, we capture some some blood work that they have to enter into a computerized form, and we bring these patients back for their follow up assessments as well. So it's a fairly you know, fairly big ask for the centers that are participating in this. But we all do this for the ultimate goal of you know trying to improve the way that we care for patients. Um, so most people are keen and eager to be able to do this. I'm also part of a broader network of, uh, clinician scientists in Canada. We're called the Canadian critical care trials group. Uh, and we meet three times a year to go over everybody's uh, studies and provide some input on things that could be better. You know, they're a really great sounding board if we're running into difficulties with what we're doing. So investigators, all, all many ICUs across Canada, they all have their own individual studies as well that we run for them. 
Uh, so it's a sort of a, a mutual uh, exchange of being able to collaborate for these multiple studies across the, the country. And I just want to highlight um, for the kind of non-science listener that a lot of times what we'll see in, in entrepreneurial kind of big change efforts is uh, move fast and, and break things. This kind of Silicon Valley kind of <laughs> understanding of of innovation and in medicine, when you do that, you can really put patients at risk and you can also um, maybe discover things that are incorrect because you haven't validated it. And just the effort to um, have to, you know, initiate a feasibility study to say, okay, can we do this? Does this work? Is this not going to impact patients in a negative way? And is the device working correctly? And then to move to a slightly larger project and then to a slightly larger project, this it's, it's quite a momentous, uh, like monumentous effort and undertaking. And you already mentioned, you know, the, the desire and the drive of wanting better patient outcomes. How do you keep that motivation going when, you know, you're, you're about to, your study is going great. Look at this. It's awesome. And then boom, March, 2020 hits. And obviously you have other things on your mind and then you come back out of the pandemic, um, with, uh, maybe this additional fatigue and, and burnout. And then now you have to continue to research. How do you keep that motivation that, um, kind of focus going through this, you know, 15, 20 year period that that will be all of this research. There's a couple ways to answer that. Like, and I completely agree. Like when you're trying to do some foundational research, trying to understand the the biological mechanisms and how they relate to, you know, uh, different, you know, outcomes and uh, recovery trajectories in, in our patients, it is a really long, arduous process. But honestly, if we learned anything about the pandemic is when the world needs to come together and find a solution, we can do that really, really quickly. Like the groups led out of the UK when, when they um, like wanted to study whether or not steroids improve people's recovery uh, following COVID infection. Uh, they did like just a new way of doing studies calling like an adaptive platform trial, which is a different way of doing studies uh, compared to the typical randomized control trial where you have people get a drug versus a placebo and you, you say right at the get-go, I need to have 10,000 patients in this arm and 10,000 patients in that arm. Uh, an adaptive uh, trial, uh, you sort of you know think about your, your sample size as the trial goes on. And if there are treatments that seem to be better, you can rent, you know, more people get allocated to that group. So you can really try to understand how people recover. Uh, and what we found, like, you know, they started recruiting patients, I think, in April or May of 2020. And we had an answer four months later that, yes, steroids can be life-saving for patients with uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome related to, to COVID-19. Um, same thing with, with vaccinations like we generally used to think that it would take it was 17 20 years to take some sort of basic science principle and have it translate uh to uh the way we cl clinically manage patients um but with vaccinations uh we learned that we can you know move that much much quicker from you know the basic science lab to large-scale phase three trials uh, in the matter of months i think that is any kind of silver lining of the pandemic is that we can move things much faster than what was previously thought One of the other aspects that I, I, I remember in your talk that you discussed is the limited number of post-ICU centers 
Is this mm-hmm. is that the correct term? Yeah, or a post ICU follow up clinic or survivorship center. We did a survey across Canada to try to figure out how many of these centers there were, and we sent out surveys to I think two hundred and fifty, two hundred and sixty ICUs. And after pestering everybody a bunch, we got about one hundred and fifty people that responded. Those one hundred and fifty ICUs that responded, we found six. Six of them had uh, ICU follow up programs. Again, that was a study that was done in 2018, 2019, so pre-pandemic. Since the pandemic, uh, I've had a number of investigators reach out to me about how to actually start up their own ICU follow-up clinic. So there may be another, you know, three or four clinics that that have started up since then that I'm aware of, but still that's 10. (laughs) That's, That's 10 out of 250 ICUs that offer any sort of ICU survivorship support. It's amazing. Uh, like these individuals, it's they're really, really, um, you know, struggling with the long-term consequences of you know being an IC patient. Like the degree of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that we see in our clinic is really, really high, and it dramatically affects the day-to-day lives of our IC patients. Well, one of the statistics that was kind of uh, frightening to me was uh, about fifty percent of them fail to recover to work. Uh, in the same way that they had worked beforehand. Yeah. And that's multifaceted. That's probably related to some of the new onset, like mental health issues that people developed, you know, such as the anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But a lot of that is due to uh, the long-term cognitive impairment that people experience as well. So we see the highest uh, risk patients in our ICU follow-up program. So people have been in the ICU for more than a week, you know, people with really bad delirium or really severe respiratory therapy uh, failure. But our median uh, MOCA score, the test that we use to measure people's you know cognitive function, is 21 out of 30. So a normal score would be anything 27 and above, uh, and some mild degree of cognitive impairment would be you know 24 to 26. You know, real flags for a cognitive impairment is anything below 24. So the fact that our median score is 21 is really concerning for the degree of cognitive impairment that our IC survivors have. And to put that into perspective, that's would you say that's similar to the degree of cognitive impairment that you would see in traumatic brain injury, like a, a major concussion or something like that, or a stroke? Yes. So it's hard to compare with stroke, but the population-based data that we have would suggest that the degree of cognitive impairment IC survivors have is the same degree as somebody with mild Alzheimer's disease or moderate traumatic brain injury. So well above and beyond what you would be considered for a mild concussion. Yeah, which just highlights the area, the importance of the of the research uh, you and your team are doing, I think, because one thing that I try to kind of highlight in this in this show and in these interviews is our perception of medicine and, and, and what illness really looks like. And I think one thing with COVID, with long COVID and, and PICS and long COVID are, are two different syndromes, two different categories. But one thing we've seen is the ramifications of illness after you're quote unquote better or after you've survived it. This idea of, of medicine and health isn't just when you're ill. It's this kind of continuum over your entire life. Yeah. And I think that's been the most eye-opening part of running the ICU follow-up program. Like we, like in the ICU, I don't want to take away from the fact that we have some great saves. Some people come in, they're incredibly broken from a, you know, car crash or they're in multi-organ failure because of a really bad infection. And we have like huge teams of people that work really hard to save their lives. And as these patients are like, leaving the intensive care unit, you know, they, they'll sort of wave at us and we high five and belly bump. It's like, yeah, we did a great job saving this person's life. And then I see them like six months later in our follow-up clinic and they're like, 
listen, like every time I try to fall asleep, all I hear is like the screech of the pumps in the ICU. Uh, I, you know, I wake up and I still feel people like shoving things down my throat. I never had anxiety before, and now I'm afraid to to uh, fall asleep at night because I'm worried that I'm going to wake up, you know, back on the ventilator again. And it's really hard. You talk to people like, well, what do you normally do to help with, you know, your anxiety or distress? And I'm like, well, I used to read books. And now when I try to read books, I can't actually read more than a line or two at a time because my attention and concentration are so poor. When I first started this, uh, I took a lot of you know mentorship from Marg Herridge. Um, she's a, a clinician scientist at Toronto General Hospital and really who put post-ICU survivorship on, on the map uh, back in the year 2000 uh, with her recovery cohort. And she warned me when I started this, she's like, you're, Gord, you're going to find this really depressing. And... I do. I, I like we take these really great saves, and when we, you know, see these patients in clinic, like they're really, really broken individuals, and their family members, they're really, they're not much better, right? Like their their loved ones, like they also are really struggling. The same, like similar sort of you know flashbacks and nightmares about their loved one dying, or you know, uh, you know, seeing them, you know, connected to the lines and the tubes that you, know, you talked about at the beginning. I think it's one thing to say that, um, you know, focus on your recovery and to try to develop resilience and build these coping strategies. But when you've been changed to the point that it's not a matter of effort to recover, it's a matter of ability to recover. And that that is that kind of long term can erode your confidence in the long term about, well, I want to recover. I'm trying to recover, but uh, but I really can't. You know, I, uh, uh, that function is is heavily impaired. And it's sort of how they interact with their family and their friends too, right? Like their family sees them up and walking around like, oh my goodness, you look so great. I'm so glad that you've recovered. And they almost have to put on this like facade about them doing so much better than what they are. So it's not uncommon for people to come in clinic uh, and they're like, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. And within like five minutes, you know, they're in tears. Wow. When you start to peel back the, the layers of the onion as to how they're actually coping with their ICU survivorship. I think that's an important takeaway to trying to support these individuals as a caregiver. The words that we say can sometimes also not be necessarily helpful of being like, oh, look at you, you're doing so great. But for that individual also, they might take on that facade, but really it, it covers up what's really going on underneath. And I do have to do a special shout out. I talk a lot about the ICU clinic and what I do and what I actually contribute to clinic is very little. Uh, I, I, I co-lead I co our ICU follow-up clinic with our ICU social worker, who is an absolute miracle worker uh, with the patients that I work with. Um, she provides a lot of supportive care in, in the, the clinic itself, does some brief counseling in the clinic. Uh, she comes from a mental health background, so she actually has a wide net of contacts in the community to help arrange some outpatient counseling uh, for, for our patients, especially counselors who specialize in trauma-informed care uh, and PTSD counseling. So I do have to have a huge shout out to, to Robin, who the clinic would not exist without her. Oh, that's fantastic. I think I think I appreciate you doing that. Um, uh, Robin um, uh, would... Um, I'm sure would be uh, would be heartfelt hearing that, and at the same time, I think a lot of social workers and and allied health professionals would be um, would love hearing something like that because 
really the the face of medicine has always been the physician, the physician, but really it's it's um when you look at the complexity of health and all that it entails, it's it's really a, a team effort. Yeah, honestly, and it's really humbling. And, and especially I think it's no more apparent than in the intensive care unit. Like again, it's a huge team of people and what I contribute to the overall patient care is a very small percentage. Like we do our bedside rounds, we're there for about, you know, 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, but it, like the bedside nurse, like she's in that room for 12 hours a day. Uh, she's interacting with the patient, dealing with questions from the families. You know, the, the pharmacist is there, the respiratory therapists are there. Like the, yeah, the, the physician uh, component of it is uh, only a very, very small percentage. Going back to what you were talking about in what you were observing in these um, uh, post-ICU clinics about the kind of the trauma, the the nightmares they might be having, the flashbacks they're having. You mentioned in in your talk that uh, it's changed the way that you talk to that patient in the room, um, and it's whether they're sedated or whether they can kind of hear you or not. It's changed how you go about that. Um, can you walk me a bit through how that's changed and and when you decided to kind of implement that change? Yeah, so I implemented that change when I started hearing all these horrifying stories of what people's fragmented memories are of being in the intensive care unit. I saw one person in clinic who had a really bad pneumonia, uh, and we had a hard time getting the air in and out of his lungs. Uh, so in order to do that, we actually gave him uh, medications to paralyze all of his muscles. And we, the patient was on high-dose sedative drugs, uh, and we just assumed that he was completely unaware. He remembered everything from that experience. Uh, he remembered, you know, conversations about being paralyzed. And he was told me, he was like lying in bed thinking, I came in with pneumonia. Like, did I have a spinal cord injury? Like, did I have a stroke? Like, why am I paralyzed? Why did they keep talking about this? I find stuff like that mortifying, right? You were at the bedside, probably like you wondering, oh, why is his blood pressure going up? Why is his heart rate going up? Oh, all that is happening because this poor guy's lying there thinking, mm. why the heck am I paralyzed? <laughs> right, 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 right. So hearing these stories from our ICU survivors, I am so cognizant now of explaining everything to them as to what's going on. Like I walk into the room, I say, hello, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, Ms. So-and-so. I introduce myself. I tell them what day it is. I tell them why they're in the hospital, what's happened to them. I acknowledge the fact that they probably don't remember things from day to day. So I explain to th things to them over and over again. Uh, I'll often introduce the other members of the healthcare team who are in the room. So hopefully at the end, they don't have these terrifying memories about, you know, hear hearing things about their care that come as a surprise to them. And, and going back to trying to connect this to the changes in medicine, and it's quite difficult sometimes to implement that change also because people are, you know, when you look at like checklists being used in the emergency room or ICU, there was a lot of kind of pushback that with, with some of these, um, with some of these efforts, what was that like for you that first time that you step into that room to say, okay, I'm going to acknowledge this patient, even though there, there's no kind of cognitive evidence that they know that I'm in this room. I don't know. It was just sort of like a bit of a change. Like, this is how I'm going to treat patients from now on. And, you know, we don't, we use actually checklists, I, I think are important and they have a place. I think they improve the safety about the way we perform procedures in the intensive care unit and make sure that, you know, some of the really important good practice, you know, guidelines aren't missed. But literally, I just, uh, it was just hearing these, you know, stories of our uh, ICU survivors and 
how their experience was in the ICU and the way they would want to have it uh, better has changed the way that I care for patients and, and communicate with them and their families. And I was going to sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say there's lots of other examples of this, like even like doing procedures on, on patients. I had a patient uh, that I saw a little while ago where his recollection was having to get a new line changed out in his neck. We use special sort of intravenous lines that, that go in the neck. We have to put a big gown over the patient and uh, we do it with ultrasound, which is, you know, some pressure on the neck. And his recollection of getting a new line in is him being awake and alert and the physician just coming into the room, tilting their head down, not saying a word to them, actually having a fairly you know, robust conversation with the bedside staff, but not engaging in him in the conversation at all, uh, even though he was completely alert and interactive and able to participate in that conversation. Has that changed the experience of the family members seeing you talk to them? Because I, I would imagine if I was in that room and, you know, um, my my dad or family member was hooked up to these machines, it kind of starts to erode your confidence into who you're going to get back after this experience. And seeing somebody treat them normally with dignity um, as, you know, uh, in their full capacity, kind of acknowledging who they used to be would would change my experience and probably give me some hope and some confidence in the, in the process. I think so. Honestly, I think if there's anything that I'm really proud of, the way we care for patients in the ICU is the way that we engage the families. 20 years ago, we used to have visiting hours in the ICU, like you could only visit between this hour and that hour. Uh, we've completely eliminated all of that. You know, we have some protected times around 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. when our nurses sign over uh, between their shifts. But we're otherwise like a 24-7 operation to have families at the bedside. And we actually invite families to participate in our rounds. Uh, that's sort of a, you know, ICU-wide, you know, commitment that we have to caring for patients and their families. So as, you know, the nurses providing their head-to-toe report as to what's happened with the patient overnight, the, you know, patient's loved ones are able to join us in the circle and hear everything that's going on with the patient. And at the end, we give them the opportunity to ask any questions that they, they might have. I think that's been a re real change over the last five years of the, the way we care for patients in the intensive care unit. But actually, I really enjoy that. It's, it's so much easier to deal with the, you know, uh, family's questions in, in real time uh, than it is to let them sort of distill uh, over that and only regroup with them uh, once or twice a week. And I imagine in the in the follow up to the patient's recovery, it allows the uh, family member to be more involved to kind of help them process what happened and what decisions were made and why. And uh, the conversation I had with uh, a NICU nurse, they were talking about how keeping journals of the uh, for the baby and just for the parents to process kind of what's happened when they're looking back. And in, in fact, I, I love that idea, the idea of journaling uh, in the intensive care unit. Uh, there's a couple of uh, studies that have been published in the last five years or so that are shown just keeping an ICU diary reduces the rates of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So actually, we're just uh, trying to launch a randomized study, a pilot study in our ICU, where we're going to be providing some information booklets about post-traumatic stress disorder, providing some you know, diaries, uh, and then following these patients up on the, uh, on the hospital ward. And we'll bring them back three months and six months later to our ICU follow-up clinic. Uh, compared to like the usual care group that doesn't have access to those interventions uh, to see if we can improve, you know, cognition, decrease rates of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder in, in ICU survivors. So yeah, I really, really love the idea of diaries. I think it, 
it's just part of like, you know, allowing our patients and their families to go back and anchor some what would otherwise be really frightening experiences to what was actually happening with them in the ICU. I think there's this concept of uncertainty within the ICU that you're talking about in terms of giving that information to the the patient, the family member and saying, look, I, I'm not sure. And then there's the other perspective of uncertainty with just the uncertainty at the end of life. What does it look like and making those decisions? How do you go about having those conversations with with patients and family members about, and, and just to um, clarify for the, uh, I guess, listener, these conversations about the end of life aren't just with the family members. Sometimes the patient themselves are cognitive enough that they can understand that, you know, maybe we're not going to recover from this. And given that it's so difficult for people on a day-to-day basis in their own life to talk about death, even at the end of life, how have you uh, learned to go about having those conversations? So I think the most important message that I can convey is that you just have to be like open, honest and transparent about, you know, how people are going to recover. And the best diagnostic tests that we have uh, in terms of determining whether or not somebody is going to survive or not uh, during an ICU stay is, is time. So we often see like people, you know, close to the end of their life, you know, somebody with end stage heart disease or end stage lung disease. And, you know, like you've already pointed out, lots of people don't talk about death or what their 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 death might look like. Um, so we have to engage in some pretty frank conversations. Like we can either you know put you on a on a on a breathing machine to help support your your heart or your lungs, uh, or we can uh, focus on really keeping you comfortable, knowing that you'll die with us here in the intensive care unit. And I always reassure you know patients when I'm talking to them that we'll ensure that they'll not have any pain, they'll not have any distress or anxiety, and they'll pass away with the dignity and respect that they deserve. Some people, you know, they're, even sometimes they, they, they have end-stage lung disease or end-stage heart disease when they've not really thought about what their end of life might look like, and they're not ready to make a decision about that. I have no problems, you know, you know buying them a little bit of time if it means putting them on a, on a breathing machine. And because sometimes we're fooled, uh, sometimes, you look at, you know, somebody's you know, ultrasound and you think, oh, my goodness, I don't think they're going to survive this. But in fact, with a couple of days of supportive care, they're able to turn things around. So I think when if people are really uncertain about how they want to be cared for at the end of their life, offering some sort of a time limited trial of you know, you know treatment in the intensive care unit is not unreasonable. But for people who have already had prior expressed wishes about how they want to be cared for at the end of their life, we actually provide a lot of palliative care in the intensive care unit. I'm trying to find the best way to formulate this, but so there is this trying to assess whether a patient is in that final stage. It's quite challenging then because there are some patients that can make a recovery and then there are some that can't. And it's, it's hard to kind of differentiate between, would you say that it's hard to differentiate between the two or is the, or are those more just like kind of the rarer cases? Uh, that's a hard question to answer. Like, it, like sometimes it's really clear. Like, if somebody has already baseline multi-organ dysfunction, so at baseline their kidneys don't work and they're on dialysis, and they've got you know chronic heart failure, uh, and they've got you know chronic lung disease, uh, and they're on home oxygen, uh, and they come into the hospital and they're in profound shock uh, despite everything that we're doing. For those patients, it's pretty clear that no matter what we do for them in the intensive care unit, they're not going to survive. And then we can often have, you know, pretty frank conversations with those patients and their families saying, 
listen, you are so critically ill that no matter what we offer you in the intensive care unit, you're not going to survive this. But those cases that are so clear cut are pretty rare. Often people are in sort of a gray zone and you know, much of what we do in the intensive care unit is rapid decision making on very limited amount of data. So if I'm unsure, like I said, I'm like, listen, I, I'm not entirely sure that you're going to survive this ICU stay. But if you want to give this a shot, I think it's reasonable that we try, try some supportive care over the next you know, 24 or 48 hours. If you're starting to get better, I think it's reasonable that we would continue on that pathway. But if you are the same or if you continue to deteriorate, I think it's reasonable to discuss uh, a transition to you know a plan of care that only involves comfort measures. Right. Rather than approaching this uncertainty with what could be a dangerous you know, response of, no, you're not going to make it or yes, you will make it. It's, it's collaborative with the patient, with the family member, and it's um, collaborative with the tools that are at your disposal to buy them that time so they can make that decision and see, see where things go. Yes, that's an excellent summary. Thank you. No, no, thank you for explaining it to me. It's, um, I always wonder, you know, and I think a lot of people do trying to make these life or death decisions and how how do you make it? And really it's, I think the language around it is, is maybe sometimes incorrect. It's not that you're making the decision. It's that you're working together and, uh, to, to decide what to do, um, given that it's complex. Yeah. And Again, my my role as the physician looking after these patients is really to provide them the information that they uh, need in order to make the decision on their own, and I can help them gu- guide them through that as well. Um, but really, my 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 role is to provide them information. There's been a huge shift in the way we care for patients over the last like thirty or forty years, but mo- really moving away from a paternalistic model of you know, the practice of medicine to more shared information making or shared decision making. I can tell you about a really cool new project that we've got going on. I would, I would love to hear about it. We've just started the Three Wishes project uh, in the intensive care unit. Uh, and this is a project that was started by my colleague uh, and uh, somebody who I really look up to, Dr. Deborah Cook. Uh, she's an intensivist uh, in Hamilton. And what they've done is actually instituted this program where when somebody is coming to the end of their life, they do whatever they can to grant them three wishes uh, to be fulfilled at the end of their life. Um, these are often, you know, small little tokens, but something as simple as like a fingerprint of their loved one that they can keep in a locket, uh, um, a little EKG tracing that they can uh, store in a little glass vial. Um, often we'll have like you know, candles in the room or if somebody loves a specific type of music, we'll bring that in for them. Or if they really love a specific type of TV show, um, we'll, we'll bring that in, in for them. And it's really a, a way to help, you know, humanize the, the dying process in the intensive care unit. Uh, so we've really just uh, started this up in the last couple of months in our intensive care unit. And it's been absolutely amazing, not just its impact on the, the families and, and the patients, but it's actually been really good for um, the uh, the other healthcare professionals that we work with in the, in the intensive care unit as a way of, you know, celebrating somebody's life. Uh, so it's been fun to be part of that rollout. We have a little fast fire round, and then and then two two follow up questions. What advice would you have for someone who has just had a family member admitted to the ICU and is either looking for ways that they can support that friend or colleague within the ICU or ways that they can uh, support themselves during that process? This is supposed to be fast fire. <laughs> this is so. <laughs> this is the this is the big hurdle, and then and then the fast fire after that. So supporting their loved one, like I said, I love the idea of keeping a diary, um, you know, jotting down what's happening to them on a day to day basis. I would invite the healthcare team to 
you know, write in this diary as well. You know, ask the nurses, the RTs, the physicians, just like a one sentence saying, this is a really good day for you. This is a really bad day for you. This is what's, what's happened to you. So I, I really like that. Don't be afraid of the team that's, you know, caring for your loved one, you know, ask some questions like that. Like I said, one of the biggest important, most important parts of my job is, you know, talking with families and answering any questions that they, they might have. Um, and for themselves, like you got to be really gentle on yourself. Um, people often think, oh, my loved one's in the ICU. I need to be at their bedside 24 hours a day. We're already doing that. We already look after them 24 hours a day. And usually for the first you know, week or two, people don't have a lot of solidified memories that they make. So your job as their loved one is actually to help support them as they're coming out of the intensive care unit and being uh, moved to a hospital ward. And you won't be able to do that uh, in that supportive role if you completely burn yourself out in the first couple of days by not sleeping uh, and not eating and not keeping well hydrated. So be really you know, kind and gentle to yourself, especially in the first few days. And uh, a general advice to um, supporting someone post-ICU uh, with their recovery. Yeah. So this is about managing expectations. And we could probably do a whole other podcast on the harm that um, popular media has done to how people mm -hmm. recover from ICU. Um, I don't like, I watch all the trashy medical shows on TV right. <laughs> and everybody, every single person wakes up from a coma, completely <laughs> cognitively intact. They, their right. hair and makeup are done right. and they essentially go to work the next day. Have some newfound skill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and like the, nothing could be further from reality uh, than that. Like really expect once you leave the hospital, you're going to get better, but it's going to take you six to 12 months to recover from that. Right. Um, and sort of let them know that, you know, they may have, you know, aced the New York Times crossword before they came into the hospital, mm -hmm. um, but they're going to really struggle uh, in the first, first, you know, several months as part of their recovery. Right. right. Um, so, yeah, just letting them know that nobody wakes up like they do on TV. Yeah, a lot of damage with uh, popular media and, and healthcare perceptions, definitely. And that's definitely one of them. Again, we're trying this question out, fast fire medical question. When and relating to the confocal study, one of the aspects is under oxygenation of the brain that could be causing these post ICU syndromes. And there are these, um, and again, this is maybe a social media myth busting thing, but there are these um, theories about using oxygen chambers for, you know, post uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury recovery. Is there any relevance here or any um, kind of research that's being done on that regard? I'm unaware of any research that's looking at using hyperbaric chambers to help with patients with delirium or long-term uh, outcomes. I can tell you that regardless of what our study finds, it's going to be much, much more complicated than one single value uh, related to their oxygenation. Even among uh, normal individuals, the uh, range of cerebral oxygenation is highly variable, uh, anywhere from 40 to 80. So like everybody comes to the ICU with their own set of, you know, risk factors uh, as well for, for delirium, as well as all of the medications we use in the ICU. It's going to be much, much more complicated than just a, a single value that we can manipulate up or down. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think uh, it's really easy to listen to this conversation or, or the aspect of the research and think, okay, it's oxygenation. Uh, let's start breathing exercises, let's start this and that. And it's really, it's, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. So even like the oxygen that we measure uh, from the brain with our, our near-infrared spectroscopy center, sensor, it correlates really, really poorly with the peripheral oxygen se sensor that we use with the, the finger probe. 
Uh, and the reason is because the way the brain extracts oxygen uh, is much more complicated than other tissues in the body. You know, I don't want to solve this right away. I have like another 25 or 30 years left before <laughs> I retire. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that it turns out to be really complicated and I've got lots of years to right. mine this data afterwards. Right. Something to do. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you were to change uh, one thing in medical training, what would it be? Oh, I would get people into the hospital much faster than uh, what we currently do. I learned so much about being around, you know, physicians, including residents and attending staff about the way they care for patients, the way they think about patients. And everybody has a different lens in which they, they think about the way the human body works. I learned so much better than that, uh, better by that model of learning than I ever did learning out of a textbook. There are programs like the McMaster program, which is very non-didactic. Uh, and I, I think that's a really great way to learn. Like just, you know, getting people in the hospital and exposed to patients and, and, and their families and their stories. Uh, I, I think if I had one thing to change, I, I would, that would be getting people into the hospital quicker. How would uh, a regular individual be able to support uh, your research and, and your efforts? Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. It's so uh, honestly, just like listening to this podcast, getting you know engaged in research, you know, hearing about it. We don't really do like like my research is funded by the, the Canadian government. So pay your taxes. Right. <laughs> and, and honestly, like advocate for research, right? Like the Canadian Institute of Health Research, the success rate there is really low. Uh, it's anywhere between, it's been as low as 9% some years. And in really good years, it's 13 or 14%. Um, so I didn't get this grant right away. It took me four tries over two and a half years of applying to get the money to be able to fund this study. So advocating uh, for research as a priority, I think would be really helpful. And if there are people uh, locally that you know, want to do some directed donations, certainly the Uni University Hospital Kingston Foundation uh, is a great resource. Um, we talked briefly earlier about the Three Wishes Project, and they've kindly uh, donated some money towards getting this program up and running. So if there are uh, local people uh, that want to contribute, they're more than happy to do that too. Fantastic. Just to add here, when Dr. Boyd is mentioning success rates, they're referring to the grant application success rate, meaning the likelihood of having your project approved for funding. This mainly falls down to a lack of government funding, which by metrics of percent of GDP and number of research projects per capita, Canada sits lower than the United States. This underfunding and lower likelihood of receiving funding leads to researchers spending more of their time applying for grants than actually doing research and has led to a decrease in the number of students joining STEM fields and Canadian trained researchers leaving for the US. I've added a link in the show notes to a reputable blog post covering this topic by Dr. Stephen Archer from Queen's University. Before we get to our last two questions, final fast fire round, favorite song to play the drums to? Oh, I was just talking about this with uh, one of my squash buddies the other day. It depends on the day. Um, mm -hmm. Some days it's Porch by Pearl Jam uh, and some days it's Fire by Jimi Hendrix. It okay. depends whether or not I'm sort of in like a 60s or a, a 90s kind of mood. Fair enough. Uh, but both of those super high tempo, uh, lots of cymbals. Uh, you can really bang away at them. The final two questions. What is something that's uh, bringing you joy? Honestly, I love doing stuff like this. I love, you know, sharing the the work that I do uh, with people and giving people the the opportunity to 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 listen. I'm I'm married. I've got two teenagers who are a ton of fun. My daughter is just, you know, you know, at, in, in in grade twelve right now, so getting all the university acceptances. So it's like fun to be a part of that part of her life. We did like a, a father daughter uh, day at the tattoo parlor uh, when when she turned sixteen. 
Yes, I'm super nerdy. I've got a, t a tattoo of an astrocyte on my shoulder. <laughs> um, uh, and so for anyone that doesn't know. So it's, it's a support cell. Support in the brain. cell. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it, it provides like structural in integrity to the brain and the spinal cord. And yeah, and I like uh, my dog. She's sitting right behind me. She brings me a lot of joy. Oh, wow. <laughs> She's curled uh, up. And yeah, she curls up in a little coil and I, I play a lot of squash too. I yeah. think one of the best ways you can balance the stresses of everyday life is incorporating a lot of physical fitness into your life. Uh, so I play squash three or four times a week. Thank you so much for, for joining me here today. If there was any, uh, anything to, I think, take away from me in this conversation, which is the dignity and humility that, that you're practicing medicine with and, and the involvement of everybody else involved. It's not just this physician role and it's not just a machine that's involved and it's not just the medicine that, that needs to be focused on, but the entire kind of experience of, um, the patient care and, and illness and, and health and recovery afterwards. So it was really illuminating to, to get to hear that that perspective. No, well, thanks. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you got that message that, you know, like I'm one small little part of a giant team that helps people through their critical care journey.